If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. Other than that, he was ably backed by Stone and Jeff and drummer Eddie Vedder. I mean, that's good. That's a, that's a good review. A compliment for us is a compliment for you. No, man. This negative energy just makes me stronger. We will not retreat. This band is unstoppable. This weekend, we rock Portland. Yeah! <laughs> and away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Fucking camera in the jump. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast if you've been tuning in the last couple weeks we've gone back to pretty recent history doing the san diego show and the camden show of last year and kind of reliving some of those memories before they get pushed to the back of the brain a little bit so it's good to get some of those out there and get some of the new stuff because obviously it's on your guys heads as well but this one is going to be the exact opposite. We are going to go 30 years into the future and do a 1992 show, which we haven't done in a little bit of time since at some point at last year. And the date of this show is interesting because the show was on May 17th. And if you think around that time, like what's going on with Pearl Jam, on May 13th is when the MTV Unplugged premiered and people saw it for the first time. And that show is the big turning point for when it all changes with this band, when it goes from a couple of singles on the radio and MTV to absolute blowing up and everywhere. So this is right after that. You know, I'm sure that they heard some positive reviews about that show, but yeah, they are right in the wheelhouse right there. And this U.S. leg from about late March until middle of May is very, very interesting. We don't talk about it a whole lot, so it's always good to go back to stuff that we really don't cover a whole lot, because that means we get to tell new stories, and that's what we're going to do today. All right, Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. Hi. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've done 1992 show on the main platform. It has. That that doesn't happen often. No, it doesn't, and you know, it has to take like a pretty notable show 
to get it on the main platform because you got to look at what they have. They have a lot of Lollapalooza shows, and a lot of those shows go for about 45 minutes or so and have very, very similar set lists. And some of them are different in their own ways, but there also aren't a lot of recordings from every single night. This run that we're talking about here that I mentioned from late March to mid-May, there's a lot of shows that we have no information, we have no bootleg of, and some of the ones that we do, we don't have a very good quality bootleg to go off of. Yeah, it was just someone with a cassette recorder. You hear a lot of like, you'll see, them. they're like, oh, it'll be, I lost part of the song because the tape flip, you know, you get that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, perfect example, they actually stayed in Portland for two days after this, had a day off in Portland, played another show in the same city two days later at a place called Melody Lane that we have no information on, no set list, no recording, no nothing, only that there were evidently 930 people there. But yeah, the Unplugged was a big, I think, catalyst for, you know, you started to see the crowd start to increase. You saw they were supposed to do that big Rock the Vote show in Seattle a few days later, and that had to be postponed because 25,000 people were coming. And then you looked at they played a show the next week in Vancouver, and they had to move the venue because of high ticket demand. And then in June, they would go to Europe again, and, like, it just took off from there. Like, and then you look at, you know, the Jeremy video comes out in August, and then it's off to the races. The one out of all these, and you scroll through a little bit, and there's some notable stuff. Like, you see there's some shows where they opened up for Soundgarden, and I think most famously is probably the Houston show. And if you know that Houston show, you probably know it for its poster, pretty significant legendary poster. And I'm going to mention that because the artist for that poster, Frank Kozik, just passed away this past week. So that's kind of in the forefront of our minds here. So and other notable things like some of these shows, Omaha, 650 people. And then some other shows, Boulder, Colorado, 1,400 people. So it's fluctuating every night. And really from what Ed mentions in tours that kind of followed that is that he was more comfortable playing in these kind of places. And then once you got to like theaters that had two, 3000 people that didn't feel like their home court, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you see it even to this day, we talked about it with Camden, like, Oh, you know, JC Dobbs went back. He pointed like five rows back. Oh, the back of the club was right there. He always kind of looks back fondly on the kind of club days, the early days, you know, when you, you just got in the van and went, you know, playing shows every night, two out of three nights and just drive to the next city and go for it. You're playing for gas money, you know, staying in two hotel rooms if you're lucky. And that's the time when, you know, you build that camaraderie and you, they kind of became, you know, the us against the world mentality that they needed to get through the next couple of years. So I'm going to mention this now. We are actually packaging this show together with a show that we're going to be doing for Patreon that happened at the First Avenue Club. And what's interesting about the two of these shows is that the First Avenue Club kind of opened this run. That was the first show following Unplugged. And then this is kind of the aftermath of what happens after Unplugged, what happens after people see it. And you can sort of see from that timeline sort of the elevation and the popularity that continues to grow with Pearl Jam. So I'm throwing that out there now for anybody that has been on Patreon or or wants to join up to listen to something like that. And that's actually, that boot is a little rough, so it'll be a different episode than, than what we're going to do here. But it's still 
interesting to see kind of where they were back then as to where they would be just a little bit over a month later. But I think a lot of this show, there is a storyline here that Dave A, it's his birthday, and obviously 1992 feels like Dave A's time. It feels like everything was good. Everything was in good shape. Everybody was happy. And none of the stuff that came later really kind of matters or factors into this. But like he's not even a year playing with the band yet. Hell, the band is really not even a year playing with each other. It's been that quick, but it still feels like he's kind of you know gotten himself under his feet and really figured out this whole thing and really figured out the dynamic sound of what Pearl Jam is. Yeah, 1992 was a big year for all of them, especially, you know, we talked about it with Cruson not being able to continue, Chamberlain coming in and only being a part of it for a couple of months, and you, I'm sure they started to feel like, oh, you know, we were just starting to get going, and now we've got this this uncertainty again. Like, they needed someone to come in and solidify that drum position. And Dave comes in, not a Seattle guy from Texas, so kind of an outsider, but came in and immediately was one of the best drummers in town. I mean, Matt Cameron notwithstanding. The guy can just pound away the drums, as we've seen, you know, going through these shows, you hear him playing the stuff on 10 is right up his alley. Stuff like Why Go, Deep, even like State of Love and Trust, things like that. But yeah, he came in and just gave some stability at a time when it was kind of like this thing wasn't all put together yet. A lot of bands, if you don't find that drummer, it's not going to work. They went through a lot of drummers early on, but then Dave came in and kind of was like, okay, I'm I'm going to be the guy. He stuck around. He made it through this whole tour. 1992, they played, what, 90 shows or something throughout the years. I mean, going to Europe twice, going all over the country twice. So he became part of that group. And yeah, it was it was big because it could have easily gone the other way where you start going through drummers and then you don't find the right person and it doesn't work. But, you know, Dave was the right person at the right time. Yeah, and I think the the whole makeup of what the band was doing at this time, you're right. Like, it was really hard-pounding stuff. I think what happens, too, is that it felt so short that we were able to kind of have this height of him being in the band and, and this sound. It's not a small sample size, but almost it is in comparison to what the greater outlook of this band is. But I think people are super nostalgic for it because it did feel like it happened in an instant and it does feel like this is the way that the band originally formed their sound and he fit in with what was already recorded on the record for him really, really well. It just felt like the band with him was able to kind of click on all those cylinders and really make this era feel just as special as it is looking back on it. Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with like, you know, Pearl Jam was fun back then. And quickly after that, you know, 1994, we've talked about everything that happened going there, going into 95, 96, 2000. And now we've gotten to the point where in the modern era, you know, Pearl Jam is kind of fun again. Like they've kind of come to terms with who they are. They're comfortable in their own skin. But for a lot of the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, that wasn't the case. Like Pearl Jam wasn't a fun band. It was a lot of angst and a lot of turmoil. But when you look back at 1992, it's kind of like, oh, those are just the fun days when they would just be jumping around, bouncing around, shows were fun, not too long, you're playing all the songs from 10, which people love. Yeah, it was just like Pearl Jam was fun, and Dave was a big part of that. He's a fun drummer. Now, here's a thought here. Do you think that 
it's like this in this era because there are less eyeballs on them that they're kind of able to just be themselves, not worry about what they ended up being worried about on the next couple of records, which was their escalating rise to fame. And here, you know, they're playing some club in Portland. It feels like you can see everybody. It feels like everybody can hear everything. You you know that everybody's reacting to you and you feel kind of like you're on top of the world. That's why people become rock stars because they want to get that feeling. And then, yeah, you can still feel that when you kind of upgrade and go to other venues, but you still have the attachment that kind of haunted this band for that mid nineties time period a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this is before time magazine. This is before Ticketmaster, all that stuff. Like, and even before the Jeremy video, I mean that Jeremy video put Ed's face and became this iconic thing. And this is, you know, a few months even before that. So People had just seen Alive and Even Flow, you just see them playing live. And it just looked like this is the most fun thing to go see and to be around. Like, you're going to go see this band that's going to just go nuts on stage. And going back to Unplugged, too, that had just come out and people you saw a different side of them. And it was just rising and rising, but it wasn't to the point where they were oversaturated. It was like they were on that gradual build that bands have. And then you get Jeremy video, then you get versus opening up with a million sales in one week and time magazine. And then it gets to the point where they get to be a little too much, but 1992, they're still on that kind of gradual build that bands have. All right. Well, let's start to get back into Dave a, a little bit. Cause as we said, and kind of a good point birthday, to, Dave. Happy birthday, Dave, because, right, it was his birthday at the show. This comes out on the 17th, and wouldn't you know, it is Dave A's, I believe, 55th birthday, but who's counting? So, happy birthday to good old drummer, and maybe uh, maybe we'll we'll hear from him in a little bit. Yeah, that would be kind of cool to to get a quote from Dave A on this show. TBD on that, but stay tuned. Now, I pose this out to the Twitter people, the Facebook people, just the people. Dave is obviously somebody that people, again, still hold this nostalgic bond with. And for the question of the week, I wanted to know from everybody what songs that they thought maybe post-Vitalogy era that Dave could have thrived on. And we got some interesting answers, but before we get into those, I want to kind of pose that to you first. Yeah, I'll say kind of the 2010s kind of back-to-basic stuff. like. I think he would have made Backspacer and Lightning Bolt probably better. Yeah. I don't think that's that far off. Yeah. I think Minor Matters was definitely one of the first songs that came to mind. Mm -hmm. But also, I'll go a little earlier than that. I think Avocado would have been a perfect record for him. You know, songs like Life Wasted and, and really, like, at his best, he is a big arena rock drummer. He never got the chance to really be that in Pearl Jam, but that's what the evolution was going towards. And I think that Life Wasted, Severed Hand, Marker in the Sand, those kind of songs that just have that big build and that big bombastic finish, and I feel like he would have conquered those. I really feel like yeah, I mean, those then, were again, throwback. Yeah, that was the original Back to Basics record. But you, you stole all the thunder from Marshall Williams. On Facebook, he posted side well, A of, of Avocado. So I saw you guys went back and forth a little bit. I'm going to give him some credit on throwing that one out there, too. Throw him in with you on that one. 
Yeah, and you should. Yeah, no, that was that. That's a good call. I think. Yeah, all those songs can definitely be attributed to his kind of style. And I think Parachutes is still on side A, so I won't count Parachutes. But yeah, Worldwide Suicide, Comatose as well. Like those are definitely songs that he could have really done something for. He did Indifference. So yeah, I'm not saying that he was incapable of it at all. Just like people think, and I think Wheelhouse. And it's going to get into some good discussions when we get into other songs in just a second that people are curious as to where he would have hit with some of the songs that aren't his style at all. So I'll get to one of them right here. Justin Sonicson gave three options. I think one I'm having a tough time coming to grips with, and then the other two I think are pretty good. The two that I think are pretty good are Grievance and Retrograde. I think okay. Grievance is absolutely perfect for him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the one I'm having a tough time with is In My Tree. And I think well, it's just because it's just so different from what he does. And I think where he'd be coming from with that would be a complete drastic change to what the song is. Well, look at WMA. Like, he can do that. But it would have a different feel to it. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think he absolutely could have pulled it off. Dave is very technical and very talented, and he likes using those little China symbols and all the little things to make make all that noise. He likes to be flashy and make himself heard back there, which is good. I think he could pull off In My Tree, but I think it wouldn't have been the same song. It would have been more like a WMA feel. Another one, this is from Doug Crooks that he was interested in. He says he wants to hear about songs that are out of his comfort zone. So fascinated to hear his take on a typical stuff like In My Tree, Long Road, or Who You Are. Long Road would be really interesting because I think you have a song like Release, and he was pretty good on Release. I don't think that they're the same song, but I think that they get to the same place. And especially, there are some really fantastic versions of Long Road where Matt is in the driver's seat in the song, and he is the one carrying the pace and kind of carrying that soaring aspect to it and allowing kind of everybody else to open up. And I think that Dave probably could have done that with that song. Yeah, I think so. I think especially the ending, you would have seen him maybe go a little nuts and make it a little bigger on there. That's an interesting one. I've got one from our... Who you are, because that's, again, another Uh, Jack-specific one. Yeah, yeah, I can't can't see it. Speaking of ones that I'm going to disagree with, i got to call out our buddy Marty from Scotland, Martin Higgins, who posted Dance of the Clairvoyance, and I I have to say, uh, no. I'm glad that he thought outside of the box, but agree. No. Yeah. Yeah. Cameron's the only one that can pull that off. Haven't heard from Aurelian in a while, so might as well take some answers from him. Brandon J, Insignificant, Super Blood Wolf Moon. Yeah, I think all three. Okay. Okay. That should be there. Eric Stevenson Gonzalez. He thinks that Save You, while he's not sure if he would like it that much, he can imagine Save You with kind of a last exit punch on it. Yeah, I, yeah. that's not a yeah. bad thought. It, Dave A's style, he's very punchy, and he pops. Like, when you need the drums to really pop, that's Dave A's style. He likes to be out front. 
Aaron Redmond popped in and gave a bunch of songs. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He posted Grievance was his first one. Going back to that, that's a good call, I think, too. But just a lot of these songs that have kind of that hard-driving rhythm habit. Hail, Hail, God's Dice, Gonna See My Friend, Never the Nation. Like, a lot of those that, that are those kind of hard-driving songs, like, that's where Dave A. thrives. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those same answers. Habit was yeah. said a couple of times on Twitter. God's Dice was said once or twice. The one that I saw from a couple people, I'm just going to throw this out there, too, because this is kind of interesting, since it's more of a bluesy vibe, but I could see it. Red Mosquito? Mm, yeah, I mean, if you look at stuff like Dissident and Rats and stuff, like you can do that kind of style that has a little bit more feel and a little bit more swing to it, but yeah, probably wouldn't have been what it was with Jack. All right, another week with a lot of great answers. Thanks, everybody. And look, maybe if we turn Dave A on to this episode, he listens. Maybe he'll get in the studio and try some things out. <laughs> no, Probably, he, he, not. He Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. That was just me playing a rib. Okay. Well, why don't we get into his birthday show right now? But before we get into the songs, let's talk to Javier, our gear guru, a little bit about what 1992 sound was and much more simplified back then because now they have access to so much more even stuff that wasn't even invented back in 1992 but yeah this is going to be a nice little trip down memory lane as as Javi would say in this so here's what he had to say hey randy hey john hey everyone on the podcast so this week we're covering portland 1992 something that i wanted to cover this week is since we have been covering the 2022 shows for the last couple of episodes it's so cool to start to hear differences in between like the genesis of Pearl Jam and what they are now, like how much sophisticated they have gotten over time when it comes to sound. I'm not saying that they never wear, but the differences are clear to me when I listen to stuff like this, like that gigantic raw sound coming out of the speakers, coming out of the amps, like even Eddie's voice and the way that they were performing the songs. I think it's a pretty cool thing to listen to and to just to compare now because in the last tour we had this pristine interpretation of every single song and the bootlegs they sound absolutely fantastic and in 1992 you have this more like innocent version of them it's more like an innocent sound like I would like to say maybe naive but it's so raw and powerful just a basic lineup of they were using at that time the majority of their equipment it was Marshall amps JCM 800s and 900s and a stone at some point he was using it twin reverb here and there but it's just like the sound is huge and it was very compressed very linear but yeah it's it's kind of funny to hear differences nowadays with what they used to do in the 90s pedal board wise it's like kind of like the core of what they still use up to this day a lot of was delays and uni vibes but yeah it's kind of like emotional to go back in memory lane and just to listen to them like over their first version of themselves when it comes to live recordings thank you once again javier and we will see you back for porch in a little while thanks again now the band takes the stage to some string music i don't know what the accompaniment is but it's interesting because it kind of brings you back to the metamorphosis to philip glass intro that they use at probably the majority of their shows since you know the last two decades or so yeah a lot 
So maybe it's their way of like giving a calming presence before coming out there and ripping things apart. Give it some drama. Yeah, you know, you know classical music is going to build up the drama and the tension a little bit, make it seem like a big deal. And they actually did the same thing. They played the same song before First Avenue. So when you go and listen to that episode a little bit later, you'll be able to hear us talk about the same thing, which is interesting. I guess they kept it up for this whole entire little run here, which is kind of interesting, but yeah. it makes sense. Yep. They kind of do, do that stuff sometimes. Yep. So they're going to open the show with Oceans. Yeah, I think going to the conversation point about Dave A and how he just pops and just takes booming hits like right from kind of the section where it's building and and really going off of that. And Oceans is sneakily one of his best songs doing that and just sort of revving up and building to give it that boost. I think he does a tremendous job with this version and kind of gets out to a really, really nice start. Yeah, I thought it did have a, a really good build, and it started off just perfectly like you want Oceans to drop with. We're on the West Coast, so we're definitely getting Oceans, uh, even even back in 1992. Yeah, the build, I thought, was the highlight, and then leading to the end, which is great. Yeah, Oceans, like, still can't believe that they've it's been played only about 100 times. Sounds really good here. song Ed shouts out this is just the beginning and now you're gonna get into even flow is song number two here chugging versions of this like this just takes me back like this is just the nostalgic of hearing even flow in 1992 chugging versions and especially that's coming from the way that stone's rhythm just keeps kind of that like all of that that builds what this song is it's the backing to this song like it creates that triumphant sound that the song has and it's kind of like a little bit muddy as well but it's able to in the same sense like make this sort of a big feeling song with massive moments like him using that over what mike is doing on solo over what ed is doing like it just keeps that progressive sound going I just couldn't get over how good that sounded with this and how he was really kind of laying foundation like that. Yeah, when we talk about even flow in the modern era and even from the mid-90s on, we kind of tend to focus on the solo, 
I tend to focus maybe on what Ed's doing, but these early versions, I think you're right, yeah. The way they're playing it, it gives it like room to breathe and like space for that riff by Stone to just hit the way it's meant to hit. And like, it's probably their best live song at this point. Just the way it hits immediately, like gets that crowd reaction. They were usually playing it, you know, second or third very early on. It just goes on and like the ending again, Dave and Mike together, like you said, Stone and Jeff giving them that foundation to just kind of go nuts on top of it. Another really good build, the even flow, where it just keeps getting better and better as the song's going on up to the end and Mike just like lets loose and it's really, really cool. Yeah, it's all about that in the pocket groove. Like so many of these songs on this night have it and that's what they were working with back then. And later on, it's different playing from club to arena. In arena, you want to speed things up. You want to see everybody get going. You want to see those heads bobbing. But I think you see everybody just fine at a show like this and Stone kind of chugging along and building that pace, I think is perfect for the setting. Into why go following up on that has a ton of power. This version had a lot of Dave, and we're going to mention a lot of Dave in this show clearly, but his prominence on this just steps up. His game steps up here. Oh, yeah, that's his moment is the intro to why go. Absolutely. And again, how about when it gets to the solo, Mike just completely feeling it on the solo, just going off of what the script is on the Wago solo and just taking it to somewhere really, really special. Mike has a really good show. Once you get to around like a live black territory, he's in a zone and he gets really, really good from that point forward. And yeah, Wago was a pretty good way for him to get warmed up, but I don't think he's there just yet. He's about to get good in a little bit. Jeremy following up on that. Hey, these are all 10 songs, believe it or not. The only 10 song that was not played at the show was release. Yep. And I guess that should surprise nobody. But also, I don't think there have been that many shows where they've played the whole entire album kind of out of order, but all the songs got played. So interesting because you're not really dealing with much more than 13, 14 songs a night. So Yeah, I think it was Oceans and Release that you didn't really get a lot at the same show. Right. And like they weren't doing Release a lot around this time. 
Yeah, and and you're gonna go a little bit after this and see all the festivals that happen in Europe and yeah. all the festivals yeah. that happen in Lollapalooza and releases maybe on none of those sets. Right. Because they want to come out and they want to hit you right away once or even flow or something like that. So, yeah, it makes total sense. This is right before, a couple months before Jeremy is hitting as a single and exploding into absolute superstardom. And I think that you got a sense that it was about to. And it's because of Ed's intensity on this, screaming out that little fuck line and kind of keeping that attitude the whole way through the song. We get that spoken word that I love coming from Jeremy sometimes, that daddy didn't give affection. It's just I think it's the, one of the, the coolest speak, things. The speak singing where it's like, I'm going to be very intense now and, and right. make, make this point. Yeah. Right. I don't think this was the most intense we've heard from Ed, but it sounded pretty good. And I think it's just... A lot of what comes later in the song and kind of what it progresses into is just the hostile youth energy that this band displayed on the live stage. And that's really, if it all boils down to one thing of why they made a connection with this crowd was because they were in their mid-20s and had something that 15, 16, 17-year-olds were feeling. Yeah, it was like the MTV generation, right? It was like, this is not your parents' music. Your parents had gone to see, you know, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and stuff like that. And those shows are different from what Pearl Jam is doing in these clubs. It's a very more cathartic, more kind of personal, intimate experience. Yeah, I even think on top of that, though, just the way that their anger and bitterness and the way it's presented here feels like it's a lot of what they have pent up in them and angst yeah yeah it's it's that just sort of way of growing up and not just that but i think that during the time and during the era where you're starting to see it more and maybe it's because it's more apparent and maybe it's because generation x and nirvana and pearl jam and some other bands kind of put it out there for you it was like generation x was the late 70s that's billy idol you're talking about something different Hey now, just kidding. hey now. But there was something in all of that that hit at the right moment at the right time, and I think Ed was sort of obviously a captain for a lot of it. So it it just makes a ton of sense. But I thought that this version of Jeremy was exuding some of that emotion. But speaking of hostile youth energy, Deep it does have some of it as well. Not a surprise to anybody. Some well, that's, obvious that scream at the beginning of Deep. My goodness. Yeah, some in obvious ways, and then some in a little bit more subtle ways. There's a moment in this where the whole "No Nothing Town" lyric. The following lyric, he kind of almost stops for a second. He's like, "I don't know if I'd be talking about Portland." And then in the chorus kind of does something I've always really liked from these renditions and he holds off on aggression to sort of let himself unravel a little bit and kind of let the insanity sort of take over at a slow burn pace and you hear it he's sink the needle deep can't touch the bottom and then screams it all out going into the bridge there like that's the kind of versions that you get from 1992 that really kind of stand out and make a difference. Yeah, I mean, absolutely one of their best songs at the time. 
I like that too, because like Ed's really good at manipulating tension and carrying a song and knowing like when to pull back and when to go for it. And he knows like, you know, after playing the song for a year and a half, I know what's coming at the end. So I'm going to hold off and make it be a bigger moment by dropping off on it and then going for it at the right moment and making it hit even harder. Yeah, this is just a classic version of Deep. You can kind of see at the end here too, there is a way that they're they're looking to descend into madness, but it didn't get perfected at this point. Give it like a full calendar year later and they were doing it every single night, but this is a nice little taste of what would become a staple for Deep in the early mid nineties. What do we get here in between the two songs? In between Deep and Alive, we get a little noodling and we hear a little bit of hard to imagine. But it also sort of had like a Carnatic or Hindustani vibe to it. It sounded kind of Middle Eastern and just like overall kind of tone in a way. Yeah, you know, that beginning hard to imagine kind of noodle has a little bit of that in there, like almost like a sitar sound kind of thing to it. Yeah, it was cool. It's on the way. It's coming. Get right. marked through. A lot of these shows in 1992 will have little, and, and this is just a noodle, a lot of them will have noodles, and then some of them later will have a lot more substantial. Hell, if you just want to listen to the Evolution episode where we tell the whole story, you can. Yeah. It's in Patreon archives. It's easy to find. We'll talk about more of that later, I'm sure. But now we're getting to Alive, and I think Alive is another one that really Dave kind of pushing the momentum and forcing Mike to go at it a little harder. And I think that there was a little camaraderie there of like, okay, I'm going after it this way. See if you can match my intensity on this. Like Dave is doing something that sounds pretty massive here, pretty intense and feels like a big time song. This is everybody. You can hear chants going on in the crowd. You can hear people react to this. So he's building upon that. Like this to play it even middle of the set, which is usually what was done back then, and not leave it for a closing song, to have that be your crowd connection song, because it's one of two that everybody's definitely going to know, it hits in so many good ways. Yeah, you know, like I said, Dave likes to be out front. He likes to be pushing the tempo and being the loudest guy on stage. And that forces everyone to kind of, okay, like, you gotta keep up with him. You gotta compete with him. When I was in a band, we were blessed to have a really good drummer as well. And again, not comparing my very small time punk band to Pearl Jam, but we did have a very good drummer and a loud drummer. And that makes you kind of push it a little bit. It makes sense that Mike would be like, all right, with Dave here, hearing him push that tempo and be out front. All right, I gotta keep up with this. I gotta go for it here. And there's some absolutely great just ripping solos in Alive.
after a very, very good version of a live, feels really good, feels really powerful. We get an improv here, and I feel like we've heard them do this jam before. It might have been in the Netherlands back in February, March, or maybe it was one of those jams from like the Zerk show. You know how they did a like a couple of different jams at the Zerk show? Maybe this was similar to that, but it, it feels like this is something that has been a part of what they've been doing. Yeah, they were doing these a lot. It would be like, take a 12-bar blues riff or whatever and kind of build something off of it. Yeah, you can look up and down these sets. Like, Ed was going back to some bad radio stuff. They were doing covers, like not real covers. He would take a line of something and go off on it. Almost every night you were getting these little, like, interludes, improvs, where they would just kind of jam for a little bit and do something. But this one is a little bit more substantial than that. He goes off for a little bit talks about how it kind of riffs on you know it must be summer getting into may in the northwest it fits into the time loop again it puts you in that frame of mind to what was going on around this time but i always like when they do these improvs these are all really cool all right we're getting black there's a great transition between the two that I really liked. I really liked how improv kind of ended and black began, just sort yeah, of. That worked out, worked out really well. Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or not. I'm going to guess probably if they put that there, they worked around. Okay, what can follow that? This is, look, Black in 1991 was not the most prominent Pearl Jam song that they were playing. They didn't play it a whole lot. When you get to those European shows in the winter, they start playing it more. It's not every single night, but I think after the unplugged version, it's pretty clear to say that everything changes. The song is a mainstay in the set, and I, I, I'm just wondering if they just carried that momentum with them this whole entire run. It's played at every single show outside of the TV performances, 
and the radio performances that they had. So I feel like that was the energy boost that they needed to, and especially for Ed, that really took the song personally. That I think after MTV Unplugged, where he kind of let it all out, I think that led to this song being a breakout and a standout. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is one of the best performances of the night, I thought. Ed being really passionate and emotive. Love the little We Belong Together tag on this. Felt like after, you know, we'd seen the side of them, the even flow, why go deep side of them. And now you're getting into black. And it just showcases the whole different side of them and what they can do as far as like songwriting and the craft and everything. And again, people had seen Unplugged. That was the performance from that show everyone was talking about. So this song on the up trajectory from here on out. Uh, Mike sounded amazing on his solo here. Yeah. Once the lyrics end, he just he burst from the seams. It's very soulful, very emotive. And I got to give a nod to Stone for those backing vocals. He kept those going for a while. And it felt like he kept that up. And that, that's not the way and how high his voice is going. That doesn't feel very natural for him. So I'm going to give him some credit for that. That was a nice job by him. a whole lot yet and i guess that's pretty normal for the time but he's now kind of thinking to himself and kind of addressing the audience but it's just kind of teeing up the next song it's state of the nation state of the world state of my fucking dick state of love and trust so again another really good highlight from the show dave is pushing the pace right from the beginning and forces the band to match up with him and get a little bit more heavier on the rips. And in this one, I thought that Dave and Stone played off each other really, really well. There was a part sort of near the bridge where it kind of has that delayed double beat while Stone riffs over it. Just a great juxtaposition of sounds there. I thought that that was tremendous.
Yeah, I agree. State of Love and Trust is very good. The single soundtrack actually, you know, talking about when things were released, wasn't released until the end of June. So we're still about six weeks away from that here. So people don't really know this one. So it doesn't get the big crowd response. But yeah, I agree. I thought Dave was the highlight, just pushing that tempo and making it sound really big. Yeah, liked it. Uh, Mike is getting better and better. The solo ripped as well. Ed brought out all the energy towards the end. Yeah, this is this is a fantastic version. Want to get into another improv here. So he's kind of going back and forth. He's saying, I'm just like you, exactly like you, while Stone is kind of doing this sort of sirenish sound effect in the background. Jeff is really, really low on his bass. It, it's a quick thing, but it's it's kind of tense. Once they get towards the end, the line that he uses kind of signifies, okay, we know what he's getting into now because it was more often than not in 1992 where anytime he would just say, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy, which would be the ultimate setup for once. Yeah, he's getting into character and the trilogy there, the serial killer. I love this improv. We don't usually talk about what Stone is doing kind of pedal-wise, but it felt like there were some kind of effects going on there. I agree. It was super cool. And then, again, the lead-in from it into Once is done perfectly. I thought this was a really great version of Once, and we're going to talk about what Ed says, which, you know, harkens back to my roots there. Love it. Well, he has something to say. Pennywise song for people that know Pennywise. Fuck authority. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, that was perfect. Yep. That's perfect. No notes. Can't get much better than that. Overall, it kind of does feel a little bit like the buffer to get into Porch. It's still pretty good, but when you're looking at the set list and you're looking at Porch is about to come, like that's the moment where you know things are really going to explode. And it doesn't hinder any version at all. I think it's just kind of where it's placed i think in this era i like it being an opener or a second song to really get you going and then sort of late in this set i don't know it gets it gets a little lost or it can maybe the fuck authority helped yeah. it a little bit yeah but. not this version yeah yeah and I, you know I've, I've gone on record many times as saying you know i prefer the modern era versions of once where it gets bigger and it becomes more of a crowd moment thing but if he's gonna have this anger in it yeah absolutely these, these are good all right, so the band is noodling around a little bit. 
Are you a yes fan? I'm going to guess that's a no answer from you. <laughs> yeah, it's not really my my thing. Yeah, same. I'm not really a prog rock guy. So, yeah, owner of A Lonely Heart, they're kind of noodling around too. It's not a band that they've really played off of. Have they maybe done a daughter tag with one of their songs once? Mm, maybe Owner maybe. of a Lonely Heart one time. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not yeah, entirely I can't, sure. I can't think of one. Yeah. Right. But there is something a little more recognizable, to at least to these ears, and that's a little number of the beast for just a second or two. One of the best noodles in any Pearl Jam thing in history would be when Mike noodled that while Ed was kind of going over who broke the sound barriers at MSG mentioning Iron Maiden. So gonna throw back to that. Ed says here, we're so close to home that this feels like home. You're so far away. It's like we lose our minds. It's not like being in the Satyricon which was, I believe, the f- one of the first places they played there in 1991. Yeah, yeah. That feels like a lifetime ago. Wasn't even a year. And if we're playing good at all tonight, it's because it's Dave's birthday. So the crowd and Ed sing along the birthday song to him. This is, if you want to go the evolution of birthday songs here and how this would be a lot more dramatic and... And overdone over the years. This was just kind of like, hey, happy birthday. All right, all right. Let's, uh, one more thing to say. One, two, three, four, porch. So, yeah, porch is phenomenal. That's uh, uh, a showstopper. Yeah. It's a showstopper, but not only that, but like Ed is getting into the, that same kind of character as we mentioned before. of lightning travel from that verse to chorus just getting through this song and they got through that first part i know that usually in most scenarios they can get through that first verse chorus in about you know a minute or two that was a minute 10 that they got through from start to the song to where the solo started that feels next to impossible to achieve yeah pushing it And then after that, it takes a left turn and gets kind of quiet, which we hadn't really seen at this show yet. But you get a little bit of dynamics in there. I'm assuming there were some shenanigans going on. We don't know for sure. There's no video, of course. But Ed calls for the lights at one point. He was probably all around that place. But you can tell, like, it's not just, hey, let's play this blues riff for eight measures while Ed runs around. They're working on something on the jam and working on the dynamics and trying to make it a little bit more musically interesting. Yeah, I really liked how they kind of built up how, you know, you were saying it wasn't the most dynamic thing that that we had heard, but the way that they kind of build off of that and turn this kind of into the roller coaster moment and Ed is kind of doing some little call and response things and just sort of, you know, some hey chants and things like that. And that's when the song gets back to exploding and really going back at that rapid pace. And then he kind of rambles back to the crowd. He's like, I just need, I just need, I just need someone to talk to. There's always something on my mind. Keep him out, fucker. Whatever's going on through his mind, it always seems to find a way 
to that crowd on that stage at some moment in a show in 1991, 1992. But this is a big, big finish on this. It feels like Stone is is really ramping it up and Stone's going really hard at the finish on it. So a lot of the times that we talk about Porch, we talk about some of the influence and sound that comes from the solo. Sometimes we get like a War Pigs tag or a Voodoo Child tag or something like that. We usually talk about that with like a Porch or sometimes with a Rearview Mirror where those influences really stand out. And for this Gear Guru segment, Javier is going to talk about the same thing and what artist he's hearing in this very, very early version of Porch. So let's hear what Javier has to say this version sounds like. favorite things about the 1992 porch version is i think early on we started to figure it out that these guys were not going to be afraid of paying tribute to their influences my favorite thing about this version of porch is it gets funky but it's, it's heavy at the same time but you can hear a lot of that Jimi hendrix vibe srv even a little bit of funk in between here and there. Like Stone can make the zone very, very groovy. Mike is always going to be leading on the top, and especially with those licks, like they're very bluesy. It's going to be using a lot of like legatos and like pentatonic scales and all that fun stuff that SRV perfected. But yeah, it's intense, and especially like I kind of like see Ed going around and like throwing himself to the audience and the, the, the band getting like super intense with it and getting that feedback from him and from the audience and again like i said before in the first comment it's just like they sound huge i know that sometimes like we don't recognize dave as a drummer a lot in this time but he pays his duties here and like the, the execution of this version is absolutely outstanding by him i love this version of porch i think it has so many different elements that we can recognize as a pearl jam influence especially with the tone too like that strat tone that mike is executing like yeah it's bluesy riffy and it's catchy i would love to hear this version coming back at some point maybe that part when like you get the na 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 that'll be fun to listen to hopefully maybe we're gonna get it in the 2023 tour who knows once again, thank you, Javier, for sharing all that, and the work that you do is immeasurable. We'll see you next week. More on that later. All right, we're at the encore. We don't got a lot of songs left, so why don't we uh, pause for station identification for a second and talk a little bit about you know, what goes on at Patreon and what doesn't go on at Patreon, what can go on at Patreon, and just, hey, maybe shout out to the community as well. Let's thank our new patron this week, Simone Prashard. Thank you so much, Simone. And she joined up on the yearly bonus leg tier. So nice. thank you so much. And hopefully you enjoy the content for the whole entire year. That's what we're here to do. And for anybody else that is interested, look, we mentioned before that, yeah, we got a new episode coming out this week. Probably the day after you listen to this, it'll be available. First Avenue Club, which is one of the most historic 
nightclubs in the Midwest, Minneapolis, and as we'll tell in the episode, they shot part of Purple Rain in it. Some of those Minnesota bands that came up, like Husker Du and The Replacements, went through there and, and had some pretty legendary performances. It's still up to this day. It's kind of like a, a nightclub and has kind of been a punk club as well. So we'll talk about all of that. And yeah, is it a good recording? No. But because they've only had a very small amount of opportunities to play there, I think it was important for us to get to it. What'd you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the places that I would love to visit, I've never been to Minneapolis, but I would love to go see a show there and just kind of think about who's going to do playing there and just kind of bask in that. I was really hoping Pearl Jam was going to come out and just do Zen Arcade at that show, but they did not. They stuck to their own songs and we're going to talk about it. I mean, I'm not even sure that they didn't. That's kind of what the quality is for that. But you know what? You know what? We make do. We make do of what we have because we want to tell the stories. And hopefully we're telling the story okay, which we have a good amount of bootleg for. But, you know, this should be a good listen and should be a lot of good insight and history into what was happening with, uh, with the venue. Yeah, of course. Of course. And there are going to be some really bad ones that we're going to have to come up on in the future. We're going to be like, shit, how do we make an 11 song show where we can only hear a little bit of Ed and the drums? How are we going to make that work? We've been putting those off and maybe that's the next series as we do the poor quality recording series and just, just get through it. I mean, in this episode, there's going to be a lot of trying to decipher what the fuck Ed says in between songs mm-hmm. because yeah, there's a reason why there's no notes for this on five horizons. There ain't nothing anybody can tell. So we're just thankful that it's out there. Let's just put it that way. And some of the shows that happen a little bit afterwards, they're not around here for us to do that. To all, to all the legends who snuck those cassette recorders into shows. Yep, you the real ones. So if you want to go and listen to that after we just kind of pissed on the quality a little bit, then head on over to Patreon, support us, support the podcast, support what we're doing in the community, and help us a little bit as the tour kind of comes forward. And we will have some tour stuff going on in the not-so-distant future. We are in the process of getting our first samples done for our brand new t-shirt i really really like this and we did a shirt back in well we did a bunch of shirts back in 2020 and we haven't done shirts in a year or two we did them that followed up on the concertpedia project and then we stayed pat for a little bit but like it's important for us to do shirts in a way because that's where we started we got a little bit of a fan base because we gave out free shirts at our first ever show that we were we did this at which was in Fenway in 2018 so I like bringing the shirt idea back and this one will be very very tour centric so I think you guys will enjoy this and information on how you can purchase one and when will come at a later date but we're just teeing you up to that right now and I think talking about Patreon a little bit I think that 
there will be efforts to try and do a Patreon exclusive shirt for the Horizon Leg patrons, the $10 patrons. So hang on to that thought. That is still needs a little bit more development than the tour shirt does, but we'll we'll get to that in due time. So if you want to be a part of all of it, help us out a little bit, make this podcast grow like we have been. It feels like we can't grow anymore, but what the hell? Might as well try. You can join up by going to patreon.com slash live on four legs or going to the Patreon app and searching for live on four legs. And there are three tiers that you can join under the bonus leg tier. One dollar a month gets you all the content that might be all you need. And that's okay. The giggle leg tier will get you an episode request. Maybe you have a show that nobody talks about. Maybe you have a show that we haven't talked about yet and you want us to do it. Well, there's your opportunity. Donate to the Giggle Egg tier for $5 a month, and that will get you that. Or get the whole thing, the Horizon Leg tier. You get a profile on our website. You'll get a profile episode about your Pearl Jam fandom, and you'll also get a request that happens on the show as well. So a lot of good things going on there. Go to liveonfourlegs.com. Click the Become a Patron button. It's a big orange button at the top. And then, hey, see if it suits you. See if you like the content. And if you want to stick around, then we're really appreciative of it. And we love the help and we love the camaraderie over there. So, yeah, we thank, once again, everybody that has contributed and been a nice part. I want to bring up somebody that sent us a really, really nice message this week. This is from Brandon. And I don't know if he knew that I was going to bring this up, but I'm going to read this here just because we really appreciate when people say stuff like this. It says, I just want to say, I really appreciate what you do and the passion you guys show every week. It's always a nice escape to listen to the pod every week and looking forward to what's to come. The pod just comes from the heart and it shows. That's such a really nice thing to say. Yeah, I like that. And look, I kind of responded to that and I said, if all we've done is allowed people to relive their memories or turn people on to new shows to enjoy, that's successful. That's all we ask for. That's all we ask for. And if you're getting way more out of it than that, then we're just through the roof thankful that we're able to achieve that for you guys. So. Once again, for anybody that is part of that, has been listening, a patron or non-patron, it doesn't even matter. You know, first-time listener, 50-time listener, all works for us. Thank you all for uh, making this go and making us want to continue doing more and more for you. It's hard work, but you know what? Fuck it. We'll find the time. Back to the rock. All right, we're coming back from the encore... I got a suggestion for you, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But low suggestion. <laughs> what else did you want me to say? I thought, I thought you were going to go on and make a, a bit out of it. But no, anytime suggestion shows up, um, I'm happy. Yeah, just a quick nod to the Fugazi tune. It was just kind of Dave in the background, Ed singing along. And then it will get you into Garden and transition into that. What do you think about Garden? Because it's tough with some bootlegs, and this is a really... What grade would you give this bootleg overall? I think it's like a B plus, A minus, um, especially for the era. Yeah, B, B plus. Yeah. Okay. It's not bad. Here's yeah. the thing, and it always seems to happen 
on Garden during Stone's guitar and what he's doing in that trance-like intro is that it feels like that's on a tape that's been like sitting around and degrading in, in quality and like the sound starts to go a little bit. And I'm not like putting off Stone or putting off this recording at all. It's just the way that Garden comes off on some of these early, early shows. It feels like it has some of that degrading quality. And you know what? I really like that. I really like that it kind of sounds wonky in a way. You know what I mean? I don't know if you get that or not. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like Garden Garden doesn't have a lot of high end, like something like Alive has or Evenflow or Black, State of Love and Trust. It's not that kind of song, which I think... You know why you saw it kind of isolated here. I think they were doing it a lot to open up the encore at the time, kind yeah, of separ- like separated from the main set. But yeah, for this one, it's just Mike McCready. Like I absolutely thought Mike destroyed this. Yeah, you know what? I thought Jeff was amazing on this too. I thought that mm-hmm. like the vibrant bass line, it had almost like a little bit of a bounce to it. And, and that's all coming, like, following up on Mike. Like, I, th- I think that Mike really flourishes when they break into the final chorus and when everything comes through, like, he's able to really ring out and you're able to hear him really, really well. And I think that everybody else is sort of inspired around him. And that kind of gets to where you hear Jeff a lot in this, too. But we get a little extension at the end of this, which sounds really, really good. doesn't really happen very often on right. Garden. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Dave's birthday. Go nuts. Sure. Why not? As we'll see in a couple songs from now. Yep. But Ed starts singing some Alice Cooper since school's kind of getting out around then. Makes sense. Mike riffs on it real quick. sounded pretty cool and then they do the same without shine and then ed says this you get to say to all your teachers on the last day of school drop the leash drop the leash get out of my fucking face so this recording we don't have the full thing of this is the only song that kind of gotten hindered in yeah it was a tape flipper which really good to get the 13th song for that I don't know. 45 minutes aside. Yeah, right. That is weird, though, because wouldn't you flip it during the encore just to be safe? I have no idea. But No, I mean, you're you're probably not even watching until you hear that click, and it's like, oh, shit, turn it over as fast as you can. Right, right, right. Because when that 45 minutes hits. So it kind of goes from, like, beginning first line to that real intense drop the leash, drop the leash at the end and sort of the triumphant moment. But I am not sure... Is this Jeff singing all those backups at the end? Because it yeah. sounded really intense. I thought and so too. Yeah, it didn't sound like Stone. I almost thought that it was a fan at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? I think it was Jeff. After kind of listening to it more and kind of putting Jeff's voice in my head and seeing it sort of play out, and yeah, it was definitely Jeff. I, I, I don't know how often he's done that, though. Yeah. Probably so. Like we don't know. I mean, like the Five Horizons review for this kind of picks up around porch and goes on. I thought too, like they do shout out tribe after tribe at the end, which is the band they were touring with. 
So for six, like maybe it's one of the people from tribe after tribe, but it feels like they would have made a note of that. So yeah. I don't think that's what it was. No, and maybe they would have made a note for somebody in the crowd. You got to think too. Yeah. Leash yeah. just like state of love and trust. Right. I mean, yes, anybody can scream, drop the leash, drop the leash, get out of my fucking face. Like that's not a difficult thing to do, sure. but it's still fresh to them. So it wouldn't sound this intense if a crowd member did it. So yeah, yeah. it was definitely Jeff. Yeah. So something happens like right before they walk off. It sounds like Mike asks somebody, is he all right? There's some kind of commotion going on, but I'm not sure what. And I don't think well, that... after Leash, I'm surprised there was a more. Well, yes, but we don't have any information as to if there was yeah. any. Yeah. So, all right. Now, here's kind of like the historical moment that comes from this show and the one that we're going to get into something really juicy in just a second. Ed is throwing something in the crowd. Don't know what it is, but he says, Ah, oh, come on now. You know the rules. You're supposed to catch them. I don't know what that could be. Could be anything. Maybe paper airplanes, for all we know. This always makes me feel kind of weird because, in general, I always hate and don't trust people. But we come out and you've been really nice to us all night. I feel really silly saying so, but thanks so much. It's Dave's birthday and he's going to play guitar in front of people for the first time ever. Usually, when we play, I just let people know what's on my mind because usually, I don't know, it takes over. But tonight is the night me and my girlfriend have been together for eight years. It's probably the sole reason that I'm alive. That's why I want to stick around on Earth. I don't want to be an angel or nothing. I want to stick around and be right here with her. So let's try this song. This is the live debut, the first of six versions of Angel. Oh, 
Before we get into the meat and potatoes of the song, here's a word from Dave Eberzees himself. I had asked him over Facebook Messenger, how long did you work on it? Were you working on it for a while? Or was it one of those songs that came together in like a week and then you decided to play it on the spot? Here's his response. Fa! I wrote it in one night. I had arrived back in Seattle with Pearl Jam and I was staying in Kristen Barry's apartment. She had an old round back ovation acoustic. I recorded it on a cassette and gave it to Eddie. We recorded it during the sessions for the single soundtrack. We never rehearsed it or performed it prior to that night in Portland. Now, is that the most fucking Pearl Jam story you've ever heard? A song that they recorded once, that one of the band members that wasn't Ed, wasn't Stone, just recorded on tape, said, hey, check this out. Then they went and did it in the single session. Didn't think about it at all until it happened to be Dave's birthday. I was like, hey, this sounds cool. Want to try this? Is that not the most typical early 90s Pearl Jam story? Yeah, I mean, you just go for it. And hey, it might not work. It might fall apart. It might go down in flames. But at least you went for it. You went for something special in the moment. And like, yeah, I didn't know that that was recorded during singles. I mean, that ends up coming out on the fan club single. And that's interesting. Like that fan club single version is the only time they they played it up until this that's ah, that's that's super cool of dave to respond with that story that's something we didn't know before and kudos to him for coming out and playing guitar like that he gets through it really really well the guy's not a guitar player like like ed says it's going to be the first time he's played in front of people and they get through it really well like ed gives a really great vocal performance on it hitting all the moments of it. it's not something that felt tentative like it was gonna go down in flames they did a really good job with it that's actually knowing the story that Dave sent us. And if, if Mr. Aberzaz is listening, thank you so much for responding. Absolutely. I thought you hated me, but maybe you still do. And you were just being nice for a minute. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Still. Thank you. Still appreciate it so much, but I, I was really impressed that Ed nailed those lyrics like that. And, and I'm wondering maybe, does he have a sheet in front of him? Mm, and because right. it's not a song that he's bouncing around stage to like a leash or something like that, maybe it's easier for him to do that. But it seems like he nails all the lyrics just fine. It doesn't seem like there's any flub of any kind. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I think that the guitar was a little tough to hear early on. I don't know if it were just, trying to figure out the right balance for it, but it did sound like in the beginning, Ed was kind of singing a little bit of it acapella in a way. And then as the song progresses, it starts to feel fuller and it would only be played three more times with Dave and it would continue to get a little bit better each time. And and I think it kind of goes off to that fan club show in Chicago where it really sounded like they had something with it, but something I've always loved from this song. I just love the tone of how this song sounds just, it sounds like rustic angelic. And I don't say that just because the song is named angel, but it kind of has a, a rustic feel to it, but it still has kind of a, a heavenly vibe in a way. It's got some atmospheric stuff going on, but you know, you're talking about the recorded version. There's some stuff going on in the studio there, like getting some space in there and some atmospherics and playing around with things. Yeah. It sounds really cool. I would love to get a visual. You know, we have the video from the Bridge School when they came back and did it later this year, where I think Ed comes out on a 
skateboard and then Dave's just kind of sitting like on the stage playing like it's it's very intimate and very kind of quiet I want to think like at the beginning they might have even like kind of been doing it like busking style just like Dave probably not even in front of the microphone and has to kind of like oh wait nobody can hear me so let me kind of push this in in front of the microphone a little bit very kind of off the cuff and intimate yeah I really like this yeah, I, I like that thought with the busker style for sure. Now, that bridge school, was that 92 or is that a 94 one? I, 92, I, I think. That's a 92. So yeah. actually, for anybody that's paying attention, I haven't listened to it yet, but the Neil Young archives released the 1992 show. Right. right. And so if anybody has it, first of all, I'd love to get my hands on it and, and hear it because I don't think we've had anything sounding that good of any of those early bridge school shows so I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear it so if you have access to the archives of mr neil young then yeah, please feel free pass it on live on four legs podcast at gmail.com get in touch all right the closer of the night is going to be rocking in the free world and you're going to get another nice little dave moment here because that original drum intro that pounding beat is the calling card of the song for the time oh, period. That kick drum, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that first line, that first verse, and then that's when they get into the riff. And that's when they get into the song. And it's all, it's shortened up. It just feels like even back then, you want a big party to end this on. Yeah, that's pretty obvious that rocking in the free world, everybody's gonna be dancing on stage, throwing out tambourines and, and soloing and guests will come out and everything like that. It's no different. This is a big time party version of this too. It has all of that good energy emanating from it. Short, but very, very fun. Entire band doing backing vocals on it as well. Just just a fun moment. And it's crazy too, like this was like a current Neil Young song at the time. The song was only what, three <laughs> years old? Yeah. That's oh, unbelievable. Yeah, it is crazy because when you think about, and look, Neil is a legacy artist at that point. He'd been around for over 20 years. But most bands would tend to, if they're covering something, cover something from their youth. Yep. You know, whenever they cover The Who, it's it's something from Quadrophenia, from Who's Next or something like that. But well, I think they've, they've talked about it. It was that Saturday Night Live performance that just blew yes. them away. And like, I think I posted it to the Patreon a while back, like just an unbelievable live performance. One of the great underrated Saturday Night Live musical performances of all time. Neil, I think with Crazy Horse doing Rockin' in the Free World, just pounding like yeah, any band would see that and go like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And then as kind of one of the many stories goes, I think that the one that seemed most rational about where the name Pearl Jam came from was part of it being, I think, Stone and Jeff or Stone and Mike and Ed were all at a Neil Young show together in 1991 at some point, and they were just kind of feeling that vibe and they're like this is a really good jam here so oh no it's uh, it's the it's the x-rated thing absolutely that 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 everything else is just stories believe what you want believe if there's a grandma or pearl believe the peyote thing or not but no is, so you think it's the other thing it's 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 definitely the other thing it's the x-rated thing 100 right. sorry i made the peyote thing sound like the x-rated thing that's just the first thing that came to my mind yeah yeah but all right saying goodbye everybody's waving goodbye and jeff and stone are going out of their way to thank tribeca tribe who was playing their last gig with them that night so they all say buy their record and support them so that's how this one ends all right top three here 
I think that I'm going to say my number three is going to be State of Love and Trust. My number two is going to be Black. And then based off of history and based off the story, I'm going to I'm going to actually put Angel at number one here because I think that it's important when a song gets debuted at this time period and it's good to go back and see the development of it. I, I think it is important, so I'm going to put that at number one. Is that a surprise? I thought, okay. I'm going to go once, actually, number three, with the little improv intro. thought that was very cool. My number two is Why Go, and my number one is also Angel. It's got to be. Okay. Hey, great minds think somehow. Maybe not fully alike, but somehow they, they find the road together. Great All minds right. think. <laughs> That's it. That's what Ben Franklin should have been saying the whole entire time. That's right. I don't even know if that's a Ben Franklinism or something like that. But anyway, interesting one to rate here because, yeah, these 1992 shows, like, I think there are a lot that get judged very, very highly. That they're automatic number 10s any day of the week, any time that you hear them, you know what they are. You remember the moments. You remember Pink Pop. You remember Unplugged. You remember Den Hog. You remember Drop at the Park. You remember some of those Lollapalooza shows for some of those insane moments that happened there. And this one, I think, is is important for the way that they're building to their future career and everything like that. But I also don't think it's like significant 1992. I think it sounds great and it has a lot of good raw power for 1992, but I don't think this is one of the ones and look, there's not as much to go back on as, as you would think or, or hope, but I'm going to give this one, I think an eight. Well, good. I think that there's so much from 1992 that immediately comes to your mind first when you think of that era, that even some of these songs that they played here, which they're going to play everywhere else as well, they don't have any other songs, I think are going to explode a little bit more on some bigger stages. I'm going to go a little more than that. I can go eight and a half. There's a couple of improvs here. They're obviously in a good mood playing around with Owner of a Lonely Heart and School's Out and suggestion outshined hard to imagine number of the beasts like you mentioned a lot of little just fun little interstitial interludes here i thought that was super cool great version of leash we went through that whole main set and didn't really have a bad thing to say about it and then you get the big moment at the end with dave coming out and playing guitar and angel so yeah eight and a half great show well that's maybe your first dose maybe your second dose in 1992 and then first avenue is over for you at patreon at some point very very soon so check on that and you'll get the beginning of tour flavor from this little run in the u.s before they went out and found their massive massive moments and pink pop and all those other places but for next week we have a very special show because we'll have somebody very special on the show of course, as I kind of teed it up before, we're doing our first full episode with the Gear Guru, with Javier, to kind of go over what the gear situation was like back in this time period, which is 2011. And I think the whole idea of it is that from 2011 onward, this is what we've known of Pearl Jam today. Not much has changed. I can't explain that to you as well as Javier can, so you're going to have to tune in next week to figure that out. But 
we'll also go through all of the changes that happen with all the gear on stage. So we'll be able to watch the video, see what guitars they're using, see what they're switching in and out, and then kind of tell you, okay, well, these songs are sounding the same. These songs are sounding like this because A and B. That's all stuff. Once again, Javier will be able to share with you. But this show that we're doing is Santiago Chile 2011. That is a show that he attended, and it'll be great to get not just his musical take on it, but his take as a fan member. So always love going to the South American shows and seeing those crowds bring their A game. And I'm sure that for Olay, yes, we're going to cover that song. Maybe they bring well, their B minus game or something like that. But we will ask Javier why that song might be as bad as we think. We'll see if we get an interesting answer from that. Yeah, looking forward to that one. It's going to be kind of a different feel to that, but it should be oh, fun. Yeah. Yep, I think we'll have to take much of a backseat in that episode. Just want to listen and take what he has to say. All right. If you like the show, if you're not subscribed on any of the podcast platforms, then please hit that subscribe button and then you'll get to see our episodes pop up every week. Not a bad thing at all. And if you feel like giving us a rating, you feel like that we have earned a good five stars for the research and the work that we've done, then please give us the five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts and you want to take it up a notch, then go on and leave us a comment as well. And hopefully your comment and the positivity that you have to share with the rest of the podcast listeners will encourage the next person to go out there and find some shows that they really liked or some shows that they have great memories from and go out and listen to it. So hopefully all that works out and we'll just chug along like we always do, giving you the history and giving you some of the great performances and why they deserve to be talked about. So that's all it for this one. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already. Miss you always. Well, like an angel, I can fly over your house, but also I don't want to be the angel from that Christmas movie, if you know what I mean. We'll see you next week. I got to go have an appointment at noon in hell. If we're playing good at all tonight, it's because it's Dave's birthday. Thank mm-hmm. you.